Hey everyone, Eric Grenier here, and welcome to the 28th episode of the RIT Podcast. In the last federal election, Hamilton seemed to be ground zero for the campaign, as leaders made multiple trips to the city. It was suddenly a hotly contested area, as not only the NDP and the Liberals were chasing the voters in this industrial centre, but the Conservatives too were making a play for the Labour vote. Ahead of this year's Ontario election, we've already seen Doug Ford's Progressive Conservatives make some moves to try to appeal to unionized voters as well. So what's behind this shift by right-of-centre parties toward an electorate that has traditionally supported parties on the left? To shed some light on the so-called Labour vote and politicians' attempts to win it, I'm joined today by Larry Savage, professor in the Department of Labour Studies at Brock University. His research focuses on the politics of organized labor in Canada, including electoral strategy and the nature of party-union relationships. Professor Savage, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. So you got in touch with me after a podcast I did uh, late last year um, when I got a question from one of the listeners about the union vote and the influence there. And I was a little bit lazy in my response. I was combining, you know, working class, blue collar, labor, unionized as just, you know, one amorphous block. So I think we should start with maybe some definitions. When we're talking about the this electorate, what exactly are we talking about? Uh, this is a great question. I think that when pollsters talk about blue collar, they often use that as a, a sort of a catch-all for you know all working class people, or by extension, maybe even union voters. But in fact, the labor movement in Canada, and the typical union member in Canada, is actually a woman who works in the public sector. So it's more likely to be a teacher or a nurse uh, or a government bureaucrat. And if you work in a factory, in fact, you're less likely to uh, be unionized than, than if you work in, if for government or in the para-public sector. And so uh, these things don't travel perfectly well. And so it's important, I think, that we parse these things out carefully. Yeah, because I, you know, I think when a lot of people think about you know, the labor vote, they're thinking about somebody who's working in a in a factory, but you know, when I was working at the CBC, I was a member of a union, uh, as as a lot of journalists are. Um, so it is very different. So when we are talking about the working class versus unionized, how different are we talking about in terms of the you know the voting behavior, the politics of it? Um, because it seems like we're talking about people that you know, in many cases, are are not in any way in the same voting block. That's right. And not in the same voting block in many different ways. In terms of income level, for example, you can have union members who are making six figures. Uh, certainly uni university professors in Canada are highly unionized, for example, uh, uh, workforce or occupation, uh, but probably have little in common when it comes to uh, income than uh, retail workers, who of course are, are, are probably the largest swath of, of working class uh, voters in the country. And so there, there, are, there are huge differences. And I think the other difference is that unionized workers have unions that act as sort of political actors in the way that working class people who aren't unionized don't have sort of uh, an organized voice vis-a-vis -vis the political system. So, you know, union endorsements, they're, they seem to be highly sought after, right? But what influence do unions still have over their members when it comes to how they're going to vote, how they're going to, um, you know, maybe volunteer or participate in an election campaign? Yeah, I, I think traditionally in federal politics and in most provincial jurisdictions, 
um, unions mostly contributed through campaign donations and through campaign workers through what we would call book-offs, where uh, somebody who was maybe a member or an employee of the union would be booked off to work full-time on a campaign. But of course, campaign finance reforms at the federal level in 2004, 2006, and then gradually in most uh, provincial jurisdictions have really curbed that kind of influence. And so unions, I think, have really struggled to figure out how they participate effectively in politics in a period where union and corporate donations have been legislatively curbed. And so I think what you're seeing more and more is that unions are moving to these internal strategies of member education and mobilization. And they have really moved into the area of third party campaign advertising. You know, we've really seen that in Ontario historically uh, from about 1999 to uh, 2018 with the Working Families Coalition, which is probably one of the biggest and most controversial third party um, interveners in those elections. Uh, but even that kind of participation has been curbed because, of course, the Ford government and Ontario has sort of passed this, uh, this reform that really reduces the influence of third party campaign actors by limiting the amount they can spend uh, in advance of the RIP period. How much does that cha change things? Like, was it the case, you know, a long time ago in the, in the 50s and the 60s? Um, that they uh, unions had a huge role in terms of the amount that they were giving to parties. The you know I think we have a a uh, maybe an old fashioned view of you know a smoke filled room of of union you know bosses making decisions. That, how accurate was that in terms of how it used to be and how it is now? I, I don't think it was ever really that way. You you remember historically unions were mostly uh, donating money to the NDP. Uh, remember, the NDP is formed in 1961 through a partnership of the CCF and the Canadian Labour Congress. It was actually launched as a, a party that would have institutional and formal relationship with the labour movement. And even though that relationship was very tight at the highest levels of the labour movement, most labour leaders were committed uh, Social Democrats, NDP members, and they, they really wanted their unions to become involved in the party in very structured ways, that didn't trickle down very well to the rank and file membership. And so at its peak, for example, formal union affiliation to the federal NDP never even hit 15% of all union members in Canada. And that peak happened shortly after the party was founded in the mid 1960s. And then since then it, uh, it gradually decreased not necessarily in the number of union members who would have been affiliated through their unions, but because we saw this dramatic rise in public sector unionism in the late 60s and early 70s, it just led to an overall decrease in the percentage of union members who had some kind of direct affiliation to the New Democratic Party. Um, and, uh, you know, I think that union members and union leaders don't always see eye to eye, but I think even union leaders recognized at one point that if the federal NDP wasn't going to win, uh, and of course these debates happened throughout the 70s and again throughout the 80s, they sort of wondered whether it made sense 
to continuously try to fund a party that wasn't able to break through and, and therefore deliver on some of the public policy priorities that, that the union movement had. That's played out a little differently in some provincial jurisdictions like Manitoba, Saskatchewan, BC, where, where the NDP has been more competitive. But even in those jurisdictions, I think you see that the ties between unions and the party are less because let's be honest, those provinces, even under NDP governments, are not panaceas for union members. Uh, you know, even um, in, in Manitoba and Saskatchewan and Alberta, for example, have never seen anti-scab legislation, which has been a major priority of the union movement and where majority NDP governments didn't sort of deliver on that public policy. And I guess it's also, you know, not just a question of the NDP for thinking, for example, in Quebec, where, you know, the New Democrats aren't as much of a, a factor there. So the labor affiliations are not the same. No, exactly. Of course, the, the PQ never had a structural relationship with the labor movement, but there was lots of labor movement support for the PQ, which I think has fizzled a little bit um, in more recent years, as we've seen some elements of the Quebec labor movement gravitate towards Quebec Solidaire. But uh, we don't see those formal party union relationships in Quebec. And of course, uh, union donations have been banned in Quebec for, for many decades. Uh, and so those relationships, I think, take on different dimensions. What happens in, a pro in provinces like on the East Coast, where in many cases, the New Democrats don't have representation in the legislature? You know, if you're thinking about PI or New Brunswick, uh, you know, the New Democrats aren't really much of a factor at all. That's right. And in, in those provinces, I think those unions don't rely on the NDP to be the political voice of the labor movement. And instead, they take on these battles them, themselves. You know, the Canadian Union of Public Employees was just engaged in a very historic strike in New Brunswick, uh, which many people consider to be successful. And of course, the, that, the success of that strike had nothing to do with a strong NDP in New Brunswick, because of course the NDP is, is pretty marginal in that province. So they've really taken it upon themselves through maybe direct action to, uh, to influence government. You know, we're, we're talking uh, about, you know, the different involvement unions have now in, in politics, but not all union involvement is the same, right? Some endorsements will be much more valuable than others, even if some might be more better known, um, you know, some unions might be much more engaged than than these bigger ones where, you know, with leaders that people might actually, you know, recognize outside of the movement. Right. I, look, I, I think there's basically three kind of ways that unions will engage electorally. The first is through these partisan alliances, like unions like the Steelworkers Union are very much tied to the New Democratic Party. You know, they have a very loyal relationship. The other is simply nonpartisan, that some unions will say that we have no relationships with any political parties. And in fact, we don't engage in politics and we don't encourage our members to vote one way uh, or another. And then the third is, is best described as maybe strategic voting, right? These uh, unions like Unifor, for example, which is the largest private sector union, uh, in the country or teachers unions in Ontario have been really big uh, historically on strategic voting. It's usually anti-conservative strategic voting. They're going to back the party or the candidates in, in each individual riding who are best positioned to defeat a conservative. 
And that can take on different dimensions, right? It could be ideologically driven, that they just think that conservatives will be bad for uh, union members, for the broader working class, for, for public policy around labor relations. But it could also be transactional, that they think that by blocking a particular party or by helping to elect a particular party to government, that they might win some uh, tangible public policy goals or maybe have things that a, that a previous government uh, did reversed. I think that we really saw that play itself out at the federal level where you saw some unions uh, gravitate towards the liberals because they were so worried about what Harper was doing, what Scheer might have done, and certainly were, were worried about O'Toole as well. Are there any examples that you can think of where uh, union involvement or union endorsement turned out to be a decisive factor in an election campaign? It's a really great question because, of course, anytime a conservative party loses, union leaders take credit. Uh, that doesn't mean, of course, that they played a decisive role. And I think it's very complicated to kind of parse out all the factors that go into uh, explaining why a government lost. I think a lot of union leaders like to point to the 2014 Ontario election where Tim Hudak was set to win and then, of course, uh, lost, uh, not only lost, but lost seats for the party in that election. And, uh, you know, in that campaign, which I remember very well, it was really his promise to cut 100,000 jobs where he shot himself in the foot. And I think where unions were effective is they capitalized on that campaign blunder and they really blew it up uh, for their members in the various communities where they represented members. They would show these graphs and infographics about what 100,000 jobs being lost would mean to your community. They were very good at, um, I think, instilling in people the fear that it, their job might be one of the 100,000 jobs or one of the jobs of their children uh, or their uncle or the best friend might be one of these people losing their jobs. And, and I think the, the liberals in that campaign as the party that was clearly the most electorally viable uh, really benefited from that fumble. And for the labor movement, it's interesting, though, because there are all sorts of lingering ties to the NDP. Many labor activists identify more with the NDP than with any other party. And a lot of the candidates that the NDP recruits are from the labor movement. And yet the labor movement, I think, in that election had mostly helped to elect the Wynn government, even though it had all sorts of problems with the Wynn government. And, and so everything's been tactical and they have, to, they have to balance these interests between, is it more important for us to bolster the NDP and maybe win it a few more seats, even if it's gonna finish third, or is it more important that we stop Hudak, an anti-union agenda, and it doesn't matter who the alternative is because it couldn't get much worse. These are these are the strategic tactical questions that I think that unions are thinking about all the time. What does it mean for the New Democrats? And you know, you can correct me if I'm wrong. If if you know, they this is how things were in the '60s as well. But what does it mean for the New Democrats that they seem to be in some ways moving more towards uh, progressive politics outside of of you know the the labor movement? Uh, you know, when you think of Quebec City, there uh, you think of a a party that is 
very far to the left on, on social issues, on economic issues. And the NDP under Jagmeet Singh seems to be moving more in that direction rather than being a party that is very, very close to, to labor. How, what does that mean for the New Democrats and for the labor movement if they're looking at a party that might no longer be uh, as focused on, on labor issues and, and more just on general progressive issues? Yeah, I think you're right about the trend, and I. But I think that trend has been happening since at least the late '80s, uh, maybe early '90s. Remember, there's this period in Canadian political history in the early '90s where NDP governments actually govern the majority of Canadians at the provincial level. This is, I'm talking about when the NDP was forming government in Ontario, BC, Saskatchewan, and and the Yukon. I think. Uh, if four jurisdictions. And that time's interesting because Mulroney's very unpopular as prime minister. Uh, unions had sort of waged war against him in the 1988 federal election, which was essentially a free trade election. And people think that by electing new Democrats, they were going to see something dramatically different. And they were disappointed. They were disappointed in the performance of these NDP provincial governments to deliver a different kind of politics. You know, the, this is a, par a party that had been in, in opposition and sort of promised a, a different kind of, of country, a different kind of politics. And, you know, with all the constitutional um, wrangling that was happening in that period, the recession, you know, it, I just don't think that the NDP lived up to the expectation. And, uh, and so it, it, was, um, it was a point at which some unions decided the NDP is not the answer to all of our problems. And we have to figure out different ways to participate in politics, pressure governments, that we can't farm out our politics to a political party. And you saw a divergence there. And you also see some New Democrats getting impatient with some union leaders saying, hey, we're the best you got, you got to stick with us. And union leaders saying, well, you can't take our votes for granted. Uh, and, uh, and I think you saw a lot of separation and, and a lot of division that has not totally been healed. Some unions have come back to the NDP fold. Others are very comfortable saying that we're free agents and, and we will... Uh, congratulate you when you when you do something good, but we'll criticize you when you do something bad. That we're not a family. That we're uh, we're uh, we're here to defend our members' interests. What does it mean for um, the NDP, but also other parties? Um, the difference between someone who is unionized and not unionized, but in the same world, you know, like if we're talking about professional workers, those that are just in the private sector without union affiliation, those who are a member of the union, or more specifically in, you know, the so-called working class, blue collar um, kind of electorate, the ones who are unionized and aren't unionized. Does this make a big difference in terms of, uh, first of all, how they vote, but also how parties are trying to reach them? It's a great question. I think, you know, historically, public opinion polling has told us that union members are slightly more more likely than the average voter to vote NDP or to vote liberal, and that they are slightly less likely than the average voter to vote conservative. But there aren't these huge wide disparities. Um, 
And that's interesting to me because I don't know if it means that that union status actually has such a, a big um, impact on the outcome. And we know through private polling that unions do that uh, they'll say that their members more or less go along with their strategies, but they also acknowledge that a significant uh, portion of their memberships do vote conservative and that their union status actually has little bearing on their voting intentions. I think that unions are much better at tilling the soil um, to send the message that you shouldn't vote for a particular party, but they're less effective at delivering votes to that alternate party that they'd like to see win. Part of the trouble is that in Ontario and in federal politics where we have multi-party systems, the alternative isn't always obvious. And where some unions might be more ideologically inclined to align themselves with the NDP, it may not be the best electoral vehicle to defeat a conservative, for example. So it, it's complicated. In many unions, of course, Unifor, the Public Service Alliance of Canada, uh, which is big in uh, the national capital region, you know, they regularly endorse NDP candidates, liberal candidates, even bloc candidates. Uh, and that may be confusing in a sense for uh, members who don't pay attention to the close race in their particular constituency about what exactly their union is asking of them. Let's talk a little bit uh, now uh, about what we've seen from conservative parties in you know, the last couple of years. We saw Aaron O'Toole ahead of the last federal election, more or less making a pitch to um, you know, uh, working class voters, I guess, I don't know if it was specifically to unionize voters, but saying that, you know, you don't need to back the NDP, that you can come to the conservatives. We saw Doug Ford when he made the announcement about the minimum wage increase that he was flanked by uh, some union leaders, some very well-known ones. Um, do they see an opportunity there? Is, what do you make of the fact that we have some conservative leaders now trying to have some more success among that electorate? Yeah, this is a very interesting dynamic. I think what conservative parties are trying to do uh, is, first of all, they understand that the labor movement is not a homogeneous voting bloc. They understand there are huge differences between teachers unions and building and construction trade unions. And I think they have really targeted in on building and construction trade unions as the low hanging fruit of the labor movement, where they think their interests will coalesce around uh, conservative platform planks far more than uh, for the other parties. In Ontario, this is playing itself out around the issue of development, where the Ford Conservatives are seen as the most pro-development party and building and construction trade unions, that's bread and butter, right? Development is what creates jobs. Uh, and so you're seeing that wedge issue being used very effectively. In Ontario, of course, the Conservatives also know that building and construction trade unions were the main pillar of the Ontario Liberal sort of union alliance during the McGuinty and the Wynne years. You remember, building and construction trade unions are the one who's, who mostly funded the Working Families Coalition that attacked Ernie Eves, attacked Hudak uh, very effectively with third party campaign ads. And so, in a way, it's to say, you know, cut it out with a third party campaign attacks. Here are some carrots to kind of get you to at least stop attacking us and maybe even come to our corner. And we've seen that's been a little effective around the Laborers International Union, 
which has stated very clearly that it will be endorsing conservative and new Democrat candidates in the upcoming election, which is a weird division to hear. But the inside story there, of course, is that liberal leader Stephen Del Duca, before jumping into politics, worked in government relations for the Carpenters Union. And in Ontario, there are these famous rivalries between building and construction trade unions. And in the 2018 Liberal budget, before the, the Wynn government was defeated, there was a jurisdictional change kind of buried in the budget that benefited the Carpenters Union at the expense of the Laborers Union. And the Laborers have not forgiven the Liberals for this. And in fact, they, they blame Del Duca specifically, given that he had been a former staffer for a rival union. And so you have this weird dynamic where some building and construction trade unions have turned fiercely against the Liberals. And it's not helping the Liberals that they're not necessarily the clear alternative to Ford in this upcoming election. The NDP has more seats. The polls in Ontario seem to be all over the map. Uh, in recent weeks. And uh, I think that ideologically, most union leaders see the NDP closer to home. And so if they have a good reason to back the NDP, you'll see them easily gravitate in that direction. It'll all depend on where the polls sit, I think, when the writ is dropped. Uh, as for other unions like Unifor and the Ontario Public Service Employees Union, those were the union leaders that were with Ford at that minimum wage press conference. This is an interesting dynamic because in Ontario and, of course, across Canada, it's, it's rare to see union leaders stand with conservative premiers. I think they took a lot of flack for that. Uh, Smokey Thomas, who's the president of Ops, who's not running for re-election. So uh, uh, Unifor has always had a more independent streak than most unions, although its policy has been generally anti-conservative. And so I think a lot of jaws dropped when they saw that. A few weeks later, though, the president of the union was appointed to this auto task force uh, that the Ford government had set up. And so, you know, I don't know if that played into the decision, but he, of course, has defended his, his position by saying that, look, when government does something good, we're, we're going to say they've done something good. And they were supportive, of course, of the minimum wage increase. For uh, you know the conservatives that are going, uh, um, you know, trying to appeal to these voters, is it a transactional thing? Do you think it is like you know, as you said, that the you know, as the party that is pro development, better for the uh, people who work in construction, or is there more? Is there just a, a values issue here that um, you know the conservatives might be looking at, for example, the success Boris Johnson had in going after a traditional labor vote in you know, the labor party vote in the United Kingdom and that they they see among um, you know, the tradespeople, for example, that just ideologically, culturally, they might be closer to conservatives than the new Democrats. I think there's a bit of both going on here. I think there's definitely some of these cultural issues. And I think conservative parties have been effective at reaching working class voters around nationalism uh, as a, as a, a cultural uh, touchstone or the rejection of identity politics, uh, something that I think we've seen both the NDP and the Liberals gravitate to um, more closely in a way that might repel some white working class voters. So I think that that's definitely playing a part. 
but but I wouldn't rule out the transactional nature of these relationships either. I mean, building and construction trade unions and teachers unions were really the labor movement backbone of the Ontario Liberal government. They were the unions that funded the Liberals the most, and they were also, not surprisingly, the unions that benefited the most through public policy reforms, investment in education, changes to uh, the labor relations of the building and construction trade industry that benefited uh, those unions, made it easier to unionize. Uh, and of course, it was a rough ride in some cases, but you, you never really saw such a clear alliance between segments of the labor movement and the Ontario Liberals than you did in Ontario. And there's no question it was transactional. Where do you think things are going? You know, just uh, stepping back a little bit and seeing the trend line, you know, in terms of uh, union involvement in elections and politics, where do you see things going from here? I really think that some form of strategic voting or transactional politics is here to stay for a while. Um, there doesn't seem to be any appetite for there to be a rapprochement between the NDP and the labor movement in terms of ideological affinity or, uh, or, a, or a strong partisan alliance. I think that those, the, the party and the labor movement have become quite comfortable recognizing that when their interests intersect, they'll work together very positively, but they also want the freedom to be able to, uh, to work independently and even criticize one another from time to time. So I, I really don't think the appetite is there to, to go back to the, the heydays of the 60s or 70s. Um, you will see, you know, depending on the election barometer and, and where the NDP is in the polls, you'll no doubt see unions come out and make endorsements. But I think those are mostly rooted in anti-conservative electoral strategy rather than, um, you know, this idea that we must elect a social democratic government. Yeah, it seems like it's a uh... Something that to keep an eye on for the Ontario election, uh, for federal politics as well, with what we saw in the last campaign. So uh, it, it seems to be a, a bit of a moving target and, and things are developing quite uh, in, a, in a different way over the last few years. So it, it has it has been an interesting new development uh, that it, it seems like the parties are trying to be more competitive among this electorate. But I guess the question is whether they'll be successful or not. Well, we'll see. I think with campaign to campaign, the issues change, the dynamics change, the party systems, I think, matter. Uh, but the parties realize that union votes are definitely up for grabs and that this assumption that de facto these are NDP votes was wrong all along. Well, something to keep an eye on ahead of the uh, June election in Ontario. And uh, Professor Savage, I really appreciate you coming on to the podcast to uh, uh, shed some more light on this topic. Thanks for having me. Thanks again to Professor Larry Savage for that discussion. And that'll be it for this episode of The Writ Podcast. As always, if you like the podcast, please give it a rating or review in whatever platform you use. It's on YouTube, Spotify, and Apple. And of course, it's on the website. You can check that out at therit.ca. And if you want to access all of the content on the site, I hope you'll consider a subscription to The Writ if you're not already subscribed. If you are, thanks. And that's it for this week. Keep safe, have a good weekend, and thanks for listening.